Good morning. It's so good to be with you. If you have a Bible, you can uh, turn to the book of 1 Kings. And uh, I just want to say, I love the, the title of this series, this summer series you're doing, Voices. I just, um, any other title, I would have felt intimidated and inadequate. You know, if it was like wise voices or smart voices or expert voices, but just voices. And I can, I feel like, okay, I qualify. I have one. I'm here. So thank you for having me and the chance to get to come to a church that uh, I have appreciated over the years. You know, um, your church has, has touched a lot of people, and there are a lot of people that are praying for you and that are rooting for you. And I have uh, learned from Jeff from a distance over the years, and we've, we've been able to get to know each other better more recently. And I'm just, I'm so grateful for uh, God giving you a pastor who, uh, who has such a love for Jesus and such a love for you. And uh, I, I've just enjoyed being here this morning and just the, the atmosphere of affection and love. There's just, there's grace here. And that makes me excited for what God is going to do in the days to come. Um, as Jeff said, my name is Josh. I am a recovering pastor. Um, I uh, am, am in a strange season of my life. You know, when I was, when I was in my, my early 20s, I, I wrote some books and I met with kind of evangelical success and uh, became a, a pastor of a large church when I was 30. And I realize now that I'm kind of living my life backwards because now at age 41, I'm, I'm going to uh, graduate school, going to seminary, which is not actually the order that you're supposed to, to do it in. Um, but uh, I, I was, was kind of living the evangelical American dream and was just loving that. And, and God really took me and our church through, I think the, the Christian term for it is a poo storm. Um, and, uh, and I'm not talking about Winnie the Pooh here. I'm, we, went through, we went through challenges. I experienced failure on my own part and, and disillusionment. And, and God used all of that to, to shake me up in a way um, that, I, that I wouldn't have experienced if everything had just been, been smooth sailing. And I, I reached a point where I realized, you know what, I need to actually step back from the kind of the grind and the pace of ministry. And I, I need to just be a learner for this season. And so we moved from the East Coast to Vancouver, B.C., where I'm going to, to Regent College. And I, I remember telling my church, I, I think God is calling me to, to step aside and to go back to school. And um, this one gentleman, you know, raised his hand and he's like, well, how do you know you're hearing from God and you're not having a midlife crisis? And I, I gave some sort of like religious sounding answer, but what I wanted to say was, who says those two things are mutually exclusive, <laughs> okay? I think I'm hearing from God and I think I'm having a midlife crisis. And, and you know, sometimes, sometimes it takes crisis for God to, to get our attention. Um... And, and it's so funny because it, there are moments where I sort of miss the old days where I felt like I just knew everything. Like I just was so certain of certain things and I just knew how everything worked and I could just give other people such expert advice. And, and God, has, God has brought me through a season of weakness um, and a season of, of being able to, to I think, hear, hear God's voice in different ways 
and hear the voices of other suffering people in different ways that I couldn't before. You know, Jeff mentioned uh, the books that I wrote in the past, and actually God has me in the season where he's given me just a, a willingness to listen to people who are coming to me and saying, hey, you know what, actually your book didn't help me at all, and this is the way it hurt me. I, I know that sounds funny, but um, it's, actually, it's actually a really challenging time of being able to listen and to, um, and to reevaluate. And I never would have been there if God hadn't brought me to some, some valleys. So it, it's, it's funny. I, I've found in this season of my life, I'm drawn to, I'm drawn to brokenness. <laughs> I'm drawn to, um, to churches and to other Christians where they, they walk with a limp, if you know what I mean. I, I actually kind of like can't stand being around glib Christians who have everything worked out. You know, and then when they start, oh, you know what I did that really worked well for me? And I'm just like, please shut up. Okay, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. But what I want to do today is, is I want us to go together to God's word to, to uh, a moment in the life of one of, of God's servants that was a low moment. And it, it might seem counterintuitive because, you know, as American Christians, we love success. And we love people who are doing well and doing great things. But I love the fact that the Word of God is so honest. It's not just like some PR piece. Look at how awesome it is to be a follower of God. It gives us these moments of weakness and discouragement and even disillusionment. And it says, God meets us in those moments. And that's what we read in the life of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to read a story from his life that I, I think is fair to say was his lowest moment, a moment of despair. And if you're newer to the Bible, just a little bit of context, Elijah was a prophet who lived and ministered about 60 years after King Solomon. So David and his son Solomon represent sort of the high point of the nation of Israel and, and their power and influence. But after that, it was really downhill, both politically and spiritually. And so Elijah is ministering to the northern tribes. The kingdom has been divided, and it's a dark spiritual time. Ahab is king, one of the most wicked kings, and he's married to Jezebel, who is even more wicked and even more conniving in different ways. And so Elijah's ministering during this difficult time, but I think what's hard for us, it's, it's hard for us to read the Bible and remember that we're reading about real human beings. And so we think about, okay, well, Elijah may have been discouraged, but, you know, he's Elijah. So can he really be discouraged? And we kind of think that people in the Bible knew like future chapters of the Bible that they're in and that it's all going to work out. No, they actually lived through in real time, in real human history, real emotions and real challenges. And so we, we think about Elijah raising a child from the dead, calling down fire from heaven, um, working and, and moving in the power of God in these incredible ways. And we can just think, can you really have a a bad quiet time when you experience those kinds of things. But yes, you can. Yes, you can. And then that's actually what's so interesting about this story. We're going to dive right into the, the middle of it. It's okay if you don't understand the, the context because we're going to back up and, and talk about this. But this is First Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 1. It says, Ahab 
the wicked king told his wife Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets, that is the false prophets of Baal, with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, I'm going to kill you. Then Elijah was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. So he goes all the way to the bottom of the nation and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. I'm no better than my father's. Take away my life. How did he get to this point? What's so interesting about Elijah's story and this, this low moment is that it comes on the heels of his, his highest moment of accomplishment, one of his greatest victories. So let me just back up for a minute and kind of set the, the scene here. Three years earlier, God had told Elijah to pray for the rain to stop in Israel. And so he prayed, and the rain stopped, and there was a serious famine. This was a, an expression of God's judgment on the nation for their idolatry. They turned away from serving the Lord. They were following Ahab and Jezebel into the worship of Baal. And so this famine, this lack of rain, was God's judgment. Well, Ahab wants to kill Elijah because he caused this trouble, and so Ahab and Jezebel are combing the nation trying to find Elijah. God hid Elijah away by this stream. Uh, God supernaturally provided food for him and cared for him. But just try to put yourself into the, the space that Elijah is in. He is, he's completely isolated. He's in hiding. For three years, he is fearing for his life and is, is aware of the fact that Ahab and Jezebel are, are systematically killing the true prophets of God. So it's an incredibly discouraging time. It's a time of waiting. It's a time of praying. God, you know, bring justice. God, turn things around. God, when are you going to act? When are you going to, when are you going to, to show yourself? Well, finally, God gives Elijah word that the time has come for him to emerge from hiding. And so Elijah comes and he confronts Ahab and he, he calls for this incredible, it was one of the most famous stories in the Bible, he calls for this spiritual showdown and confrontation between him and the false prophets of Baal. And he says, gather the people, the prophets of Baal can build an altar, I will build an altar to the Lord, we'll both call for God to answer, and whichever God answers with fire, that's the true God. And the people all say, yes, let's do this. And so they gather on Mount Carmel, and it says the whole nation came out. I mean, in this, in this day, I, mean, I think it would be the equivalent of, of us filling up a, an Olympic stadium and broadcasting it to the entire nation. The, the, the nation is transfixed 
on this moment. This is high drama. This is incredible. And Elijah addresses the people and challenges them. Basically, they're, they're trying to have it both ways. They, you know, a little bit of Baal, a little bit of God, cover their bases. And he's saying, no, decide today who you're going to serve. Choose today. Stop limping between two opinions. And so the prophets of Baal, there are 450 of them. And, and only one prophet of God, Elijah. And they, they build their altar. They bring out these stones and they slaughter a bull, sacrifice this bull on the altar. And then they begin to circle around and they begin to call on Baal and they begin to chant and ask for him to send fire. And Elijah, he stands off to the side and is so incredible. He begins to, he begins to engage in like this, this prophet smack talk, basically, where he begins to mock them and, and, and throw out these lines like, maybe you should call louder. You know, like maybe he stepped away. You know, maybe he's on vacation. He can't come immediate. You should call louder. My favorite is maybe he's going to the bathroom right now. You know, he's relieving himself. And this is like parents' worst nightmare because, you know, you tell your kids not to use potty humor. It's in the Bible, folks, okay? It's in the Bible. Elijah does it. So this just, this just infuriates them. And uh, they begin to call louder. They begin to dance faster. They, they even begin to take knives and swords and cut themselves. And I just think it's such a picture of, of man-centered religion. You know, you have to bleed for false gods. The true God comes to us and bleeds for us to bring salvation. They, they exhaust themselves, exhaust themselves calling on this false god. And, and hours go by and the day is, is growing old and they finally just fall exhausted and there's no answer. And so then Elijah steps forward and he, he builds his altar to the Lord. And they put the, the wood on the altar and they slaughter a bull and place it on the altar. And then it, it, if, as if things weren't dramatic enough, he calls for them to bring these huge containers of water and pour, pour water over the sacrifice. And, and it fills up this trench around the sacrifice. And then, and then he prays. I just want you to hear this prayer in chapter 18, he says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Incredible. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And this is the part that they, they often leave out in Sunday school. Um, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. So he is the arm of God's justice for all of their false worship and, and their murder of the prophets of God. 
but, but it, doesn't, it doesn't even end there. God tells Elijah in the following verses to pray for the rain to come. And he begins to pray multiple times. And finally, there's this small cloud the size of a fist. And he sends word to King Ahab, get in your chariot and race back to Samaria, the capital city, because the rain is coming. And so Ahab gets in his chariot and he races back to Samaria and the rain comes and Elijah is filled with the spirit and the power of God and he runs to Samaria so fast that he actually outruns Ahab. If you, if you ever think that you've ever had like a, a spiritual high after like a youth retreat, it's, it wasn't as high as Elijah's, okay? And the, the, the man was, was just on a whole nother level, right? Fire from heaven Everyone's seeing that he's the prophet of God. The rain comes and he's filled with the power of God and he runs to Samaria. All of that has just taken place leading up to the text that we read together. All of that. And he arrives there. He's done everything that you could possibly do. The power of God is on full display and it all falls flat. I think that Elijah, I don't know what he anticipated. I, I, maybe he pictured the people coming out to line the streets and worshiping God. Maybe he pictured Ahab and Jezebel um, repenting and saying, we were wrong, we want to lead the people back to God. But instead he gets this, this note from Jezebel saying, you killed my prophets, God help me if I don't kill you tomorrow. And, and it says that he was, he was afraid and he arose and he ran. But it, but it seems like there's more going on than just fear of Jezebel because he's been on the run from Jezebel for a while. It, it seems like something broke inside of him in this moment. And, and it has to do with all of his plans falling apart. Everything that he had hoped for and, and worked for and longed for... <laughs> And there's no renewal. There's no change. There's no revival. And it says that he, he gave up. He, he went to this southern town of Beersheba. He left his servant there. He basically fired his staff. <laughs> it's just like, you know what? This is, I'm over the whole prophet thing. I give up. And he goes into the wilderness and, and asks if he could die. He says, it is enough now, verse 4. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. I am no better than my father's. Such an interesting statement. You know, it's this, this idea that he carried in some way that he was, he was different than the past generations. Doesn't that kind of motivate us in life? We kind of show up and we're in our early 20s and we're like, you know, especially if you're a Christian, you're kind of like, oh my gosh, these past generations, we're going to be the generation that's going to bring in the purpose of God. And da, 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 you know, and it kind of, you know, you're kind of looking down on your folks and the, you know, the church before and the church didn't know how to do anything, but now we are here. Thank God. And <laughs> my wife and I, we, we uh, were both in our early 40s, and, um, you know, you reach that moment in your life where you look in the mirror and you go, oh, dang, I'm no better than my father, <laughs> right? 
you realize that all that same weakness and maybe not the same mistakes, but just a different set of mistakes and blind spots and suddenly that energy that you thought was an energy for God, but maybe it was an energy of self-righteousness, an energy of feeling like, you know, you were something so special and Elijah, for Elijah, it's like it's just been swept away and he's just ready to give up completely. He feels like a failure. He feels, he feels like there's, there's no reason to go on. Aren't you grateful that the Bible is this honest? I don't know if you've, you've been at this place spiritually or emotionally um, where you've, you've let yourself down or other people have let you down. Um, sometimes it's hard in the church to, to talk honestly about these things, to talk about depression, to talk about... Uh, anger and, and just even express our, our emotions because we feel like, you know, we should just be filled with joy all the time and we shouldn't struggle if we were really trusting the Lord. And I feel like, the, you know, the Lord, he gives us stories like this. He gives us the rawness of, of the Psalms to say part of being a human being in a fallen world is experiencing, you know, feelings like this. And I, I am a God who, who can encounter you in those moments. So I want us just to look at the way this story unfolds for Elijah and, and some things that, that we learn from Elijah's story. And the first is this. Number one, God is patient with our weakness. I want to read what happens next. Elijah's under this broom tree. He prays that God would take away his life. And verse 5 says, And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. He's just exhausted. But look at what happens next. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. I, I want you to see in this, this interesting story that's included for us, I want you to see the gentleness and the patience of God in this moment. He doesn't rebuke Elijah. He isn't harsh with him. He cares for him. He cares for his body. He doesn't Maybe this even surprises you that God would act in this way. But he doesn't lecture him. He doesn't give him a lecture on sovereignty. <laughs> he lets him sleep. He doesn't send an angel to kick Elijah awake. Like, what are you doing? Get up. Get back to work. Hasn't God shown you how powerful and faithful he is? What are you doing sleeping on the job? No, he, he sends an angel who touches him and gives him hot cake and something to drink. <laughs> and then he lets him go back to sleep. I just think that's so amazing. I think it's such an interesting detail to include. Now, I, don't misunderstand me. It, God sometimes rebukes us in our sin and unbelief. 
Uh, you know, the story of Jeremiah, the story of Moses, there were moments where they were saying, no, God, you know, I'm not the person, you can't use me, and God was stern with them. So I, I think the point is that God knows exactly what we need at different times. And, and it isn't always a lecture. He, he knows how to care for us spiritually. And I, I love the, the fact that he he cares for Elijah even physically in this moment. He understands that we are, we are, we're humans. We have bodies. We, we grow weary. We, we need, the, the scripture says that God gives us sleep as a gift. Psalm 103 says that God remembers that we are dust. He understands our, our nature and our weakness. And he's not, he's not repelled by that. He isn't surprised by that. He isn't disgusted by that. He, he comes to us in, in his grace and he gives us food to, to eat and, and sleep to replenish us and strengthen us. God is so gentle and patient and kind. And I love, to, I love to visit this story because there's some of you who need to hear this today because you think that God is upset with you for, for ever feeling weak, ever being discouraged. And you have this view of God that, you know, in those moments where you're not producing when you're not up and working for him, when you are feeling low, that he is trying to be patient, but slightly ticked off, looking at his watch, kind of saying, come on, hey, remember all that I've done for you. Can you please do something for me? The world's a mess. You got to fix it. Come on. <laughs> That's not true. He knows you're weak. He's not surprised by your weakness. He's not looking at his watch. He's not tapping his foot saying, get over it. He's the God who ministers grace to you. He's a father who loves you. And the most awesome display of his heart for you is that the salvation that he brings us is not, is not a salvation of just sending a message from heaven or, or sending an angel with a, a checklist for us to fulfill. But God, in his love and his grace, he comes to us in the person of his son. He literally enters in to our human condition. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, with us in the most profound meaning possible. He enters into our weakness. Not even just an angel that touches us, but he becomes one of us. He enters into our weakness to bring redemption and, and salvation. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Jesus took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. He, he entered into all of that. He, he picks it up with us. He, he weeps alongside us. And, and Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. One of the most important things to remember when you are 
in a low moment, when you are discouraged, when you are weak, when you don't feel like you're, you're bringing any like energy to God and you're useful to him, it's so important that you remember that he's not surprised by your weakness, he's not exasperated. If you feel like a bruised reed, Isaiah 42 says that Jesus is the one that will not break a bruised reed. Jesus is the one who, when you feel like a smoldering wick, he will not put you out. When, when your faith just feels like a candle that's, that's just about to go out, Jesus, Jesus comes and he shields you. It, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be weak. God knows that the journey is too great for you. And he's able to, to strengthen you. And so don't, don't turn away from him or, or pull back from him waiting to get yourself strong so that you can then present yourself to him. Come to him in your weakness. Come to him and, and ask for his refreshment. Bring, bring all of that to him. And, and in his presence, commune with him. Commune with the one who is able to sympathize with our weakness. Let's, let's read the, the next part of the, the story in verse 8. It says that Elijah arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And then we come to this, this incredible, incredible story of God, of God encountering Elijah on the mountain it says, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And so Elijah goes from this cave. He's standing at the mouth of this cave on the, the side of this mountain. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, verse 15, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, 
and every mouth that has not kissed him. Okay, so that's a, a lot to take in. Let's just stop and, and think about what, what's taking place here. Elijah, Elijah is, is strengthened by the food from this angel. He travels for 40 days to Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. So it seems to be that um, he's over his greatest discouragement. He's kind of taking back up this mantle of being God's servant, but he's still searching for answers. He still, he still wants to have a talk with God. So he goes to, to Mount Sinai, which is where God showed up last with, with Moses. So you almost get the sense that he's saying, okay, God, I need you to show up again, and I need you to explain what's taking place here. And some, some uh, Bible scholars, you know, they guess like maybe it was the same cleft in the rock that Moses was in. That would be really cool. I don't know. But he goes to this cave, and, and God, God speaks to him, and he asks him this question, what are you doing here, Elijah? So what that tells us is, is that it's not like God is telling him to go there. It's not like some sort of special mission. Obviously, Elijah is searching for something. He's wanting something. And God, you still see the patience of God here, I think. He doesn't say, Elijah, let me tell you what your problem is. He, he uses a question to draw out his heart to say, what is it that you really want? Why are you really discouraged? Why are you doubting your calling? Why are you ready to give up? What is it that you think has changed about me? What's changed about the situation? What, what do you want, Elijah? And Elijah basically says, I've done everything I was supposed to do. The bad guys are winning. I'm the only one left. Essentially, what in the world are you doing, God? Is, is what he says. And <laughs> God, this leads us to the second thing that we learn from Elijah's story, God's still working even when it's not how we planned. Because Elijah's basically saying, you're not working. I'm the only one left. They've killed everybody. The whole nation is turned away. What are you doing? But God is still working even when he's not working the way we planned or we would want him to work. God, God doesn't answer Elijah by, by revealing his every purpose. You know, he could have just, he could have said, okay, you're discouraged. Elijah, let me cheer you up. Let me tell you how Jezebel's going to die. She's going to get eaten by dogs. You feel better? Thank you, Lord. You know, all right. That's all I needed. I just needed, a, you know, just, just help me out here. And that's, that's often what we want. You know, we, we want details we want times and dates we you know if something bad happens to us we want to be able to see how god is using it for good god doesn't owe us that he he doesn't he doesn't all, he rarely shows us how all those things fit together and and if you ever like have the urge to tell someone else how the bad thing that happened to them is already working for good just like don't do that okay because you never appreciate it when someone else does it to you. So, like, don't pass that on. <laughs> God, doesn't, God doesn't give all these neat answers. Instead, he does this, in, this incredible thing. And it's, it's, so, it's so poetic. It's kind of mysterious. He, he parades his power in front of Elijah as he's, he's standing on this mountain. You know, the wind, and it's like it's just tearing the side 
of the mountain. And then it says, but the Lord was not in the wind. And then this earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And the same thing with the fire. And it, I don't even completely understand what's taking place here because it's like the, God is doing all this, but then there's this message that's saying, but that's not it. In some way, that's not it. And then it says, the sound of a, a low whisper, or the King James is a still, small voice. And it's, and it's like, that's it. And so Elijah goes to the mouth of the cave. What, what does this mean? What, what is the point of this? Well, Pastor Tim Keller, in a message that he gave um, on this chapter, really helped me to, to understand this. He really unlocked this for me. He said that the point isn't that God doesn't sometimes come with fire. Because we know that God can come with fire. We just read about God sending fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. And, and God can, can, can work through an earthquake. He did that when Moses was on Mount Sinai. The earth, you know, the mountain was shaking. The people were terrified. And, and we know on the, the day of Pentecost, God, God's spirit came rushing like a wind. So the point isn't that God can't use those things, Keller says, the point, isn't that, the point is that he doesn't always work in the same way. He doesn't, he doesn't have to use those methods. Sometimes he, he comes in a way that's so almost unnoticeable, a still small voice. And it's not always grand and elaborate and impressive. It's not always the way that we want things to unfold, but he's still working, even if it's just a low whisper. And, and Keller says, Elijah's mistake is that he, he put God in a box. In other words, Elijah decided that there was only one way for God to work. God needed to bring revival. God needed to bring repentance to the nation. God needed to throw down Ahab and Jezebel. And for him, to, that, that was his definition of God working. That was his fire. And God is saying, I don't always work in the same way. And just because you have this plan doesn't mean that that is my plan. Keller captured this so well. He said, often our greatest discouragement comes when we make our plan God. Our greatest discouragement comes when we make our plan God. So we build something up in our mind, and it's, it's often... As Christians, it's often a really godly plan. It's a plan for how our marriage is supposed to work. It's a plan for how our kids are supposed to turn out because we read all of those parenting books and we did all that crap they told us to do, so our kids are supposed to be these kind of kids. It's a good plan. Or we live our Christian life this way and we're supposed to live this victorious life or our church is supposed to, whatever. We can have these great plans, but we begin to hope in them. We begin to invest in them. They become our God. They become the thing we're trusting in and living for. And then our plan doesn't come through and we say, God's failed me. No, God has not failed you. Your plan failed you. And your plan might have been good. But God doesn't always come with fire. He doesn't always come in an earthquake. No, I believe that God has power to heal. I believe that he can answer prayer and that he heals people, but he doesn't always. 
Sometimes he, he leaves a, a thorn in our side or someone that we love that we are asking for God to heal is taken from us. God can, can work and bring revival so that 3,000 people are saved in one day in response to one sermon. And he's worked in that way in church history at different times, but it doesn't always work that way. And sometimes the growth of his kingdom can be so subtle and, and almost unnoticeable. It's like watching a plant grow. Have you ever watched a plant grow? <laughs> doesn't seem like anything's happening if you just stare at it. Just because God isn't working in the timing or in the way that we would want doesn't mean that he's not working. And, and that leads to point number three, which is closely connected, and that is that God's purpose is better than ours. So it's not enough to just say, you're right, God can work differently. My plan is better, but I'll let God do his. That's fine. You know, like, you know, the, the, the life of the call of faith for us is to say, even when we don't understand it, this belief that God in his, in his wisdom and in his love has a, better, has a better purpose, a better plan than ours. You know, it's interesting. Did you notice in, in reading the passage that even after the, the lesson, I mean, pretty amazing object lesson, right? Wind, earthquake, fire, God does all this. Elijah hasn't really moved on. He, he didn't really, like, he didn't stop and say, oh, I see what you're doing there. That's good. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm better now, right? God does all that, and then he says, you know, what, what do you want, Elijah? And Elijah answers by saying the exact same thing. He completely repeats himself. And I just think it's so funny that like the scribes in the, in the old days, they didn't just write, and Elijah repeated himself. They just list it all out. He says the exact same thing. And what that says is, he, he's basically saying to God, I don't think you heard me the first time. <laughs> he, he thinks that he sees all that God is doing, and so he's giving God a briefing. Do you ever do that in your life when it comes to your life of prayer or the way that you relate to God? You come to God and you're kind of saying, God, obviously you're not aware of some of the stuff that's going on because if you were, you'd be doing things differently. So I'm here to brief you humbly as your servant, right? <laughs> But let me tell you what's happening in the nation. Let me tell you the problems that are taking place in the church today. <sighs> you see, Elijah's making the mistake of assuming that he sees everything. That he sees all the things that God is doing. And he assumes that his knowledge of the situation is a sound basis for evaluating the goodness of God's purpose. And I just want to I just want to encourage and challenge you today, brothers and sisters. God loves you more intensely than you can imagine. His affection for you is so great, it's so specific, and he is at work in a million different ways in your life in ways that you're not aware of. 
You think maybe you see two, three, four, five ways. God is at work around you and your family and in your church and in your city and in the world in so many countless ways that you cannot see. Do not judge him on the basis of of your sight and your knowledge. In verse 15, God does something so incredible. He, he gives Elijah these marching orders. And it's kind of a confusing part of the passage because it lists all these names and cities and rulers and so on. But, but what he's doing is he's giving him instruction as to what he's supposed to do. And in giving these instructions, he's showing Elijah that his purpose is so much bigger and so much more awesome and all-encompassing than Elijah can even imagine. So he's basically saying, Elijah, you're preoccupied with Israel and one ruler, and you're asking what I'm doing. Well, let me tell you something. I've already appointed the next ruler of Syria. I'm sovereign over all nations. I've already appointed the next ruler of Israel. I've already appointed the guy who's going to replace you. And I've given him a name that is so close to yours it's going to confuse Christians for thousands of years. His name's Elisha. (laughs) I'm completely in control. And by the way, there are 7,000 that have not bent the knee. You think you're the only one left. I'm sustaining people all over the place. Isn't that so beautiful? You know, we we look at the world and we go, oh my gosh, this is happening and that's happening. God is completely in control. He's already, he already knows who the next ruler of every nation will be. And you know what? He has people in every city, in every place. He's sustaining his church. His plan is right on time. There is nothing for us to be anxious or worried about. We don't see all that he's doing, but God is in control. And he loves his people. He loves his people. His purpose, his purpose is, is better than ours. And it's so easy to say that. It's so much harder to live it. <laughs> it's so much harder to, to live it. You know, Elijah never saw the, the national revival that he had hoped for and, and prayed for. And just let, kind of let that sit. You know, are you okay with that? Whatever... Whatever dreams that you have, even good dreams that you feel like are, are good godly dreams, are you willing to trust the Lord enough with them to say, Lord, I believe your purpose and your timing is better? Are you willing to, to hand that to him? Elijah never saw justice for Ahab and Jezebel. He never saw the people turn back to God the way that he had longed for and anticipated, but but God had a better purpose, a bigger purpose. 900 years after Elijah lived and ministered, God sent to Israel the ultimate prophet, priest, and king in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And what I love about the way God works 
is that he let Elijah get a glimpse of that. Do you, do you remember in the Gospel of Luke, there's a story where one day Jesus took J- Peter, James, and John up the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, and they got this incredible glimpse of Jesus' eternal glory. It says that Jesus was transformed. His face shone like the sun. They saw his eternal glory. And as they saw him on that mountain, do you remember who he was there speaking with? It was Moses and Elijah. <laughs> Moses, who, who never got to enter the promised land, only saw it from a distance. Elijah, who never got to see the national revival that he longed for. And yet, in this moment, in, in, the, in the kindness of God, God says to these two, gentlemen, come here. I want you to see my better purpose. This is my son. Listen to him. You know, Elijah, Elijah had, a, had a pretty good plan, but God's plan was so much greater. Elijah wanted to see one king, one evil king overthrown. Jesus came and by his life and death and resurrection conquered death and hell and sin forever. And, and Elijah wanted to see, he wanted to see one nation and one generation turned to God, and Jesus came so that people from all nations, every tribe and tongue can be swept up into the purpose and the the plan of God so that on that final day, every nation and tribe will be represented as we worship before the eternal Son of God. God's plan is better, and God's plan is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. His plan, his plan is not about our glory and our strength and all that we will ultimately do. His purpose and his plan and his glory is revealed in his son. And so I don't know, I don't know what dreams that you have. I, I, I hope that they'll be fulfilled. I hope that God will amaze you with his grace, but I, I, I want to encourage you. His grace is just as amazing and just as wonderful, even if those dreams don't come to fulfillment. And one day, you're going to, you're going to stand before Jesus just like Elijah did. And you're going to see that God's purpose is better. Because Jesus is the one who brings justice and comfort and new life. Jesus is the one who wipes away on that final day, every tear from our eyes. And no matter how much heartache is in this life, we will be able to, we will be able to say, God, your purpose was better. Your purpose was better. Let's pray together. Father, I just pray your blessing and presence on my friends who are gathered here. Thank you for this church you love so much that you shed your blood to redeem. I pray that your blessing would rest upon each person, Lord, a greater awareness of the intensity of your love for us in Jesus, that we would be rooted and grounded in that. God, that you would mature us where we've made our, our plans, our God. Lord, use, use our midlife or quarter life or 
three-quarters life crises to just get our attention and remind us that it's all about you and use our heartache to draw us closer to you. And may we not, may we not become proud and bitter and resentful, but may we, may we be softened and may we be like, like little children that just sit at your feet and trust you, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.